afternoon and welcome to the 129th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I discuss the compound disaster of wildland fire and smoke and COVID-19 with Luke Montrose. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. You can just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I just want to give um, one small announcement and a note of accolades for uh, Shivani Patel, who you met on COVID calls as one of my co-hosts when we did a week on education. And she gave her presentation at Drexel University for students tackling advanced research, the STAR program. And that is up online. I've got it. Uh, linked on Twitter if anybody wants to check it out. Uh, just really uh, honored and proud of all the great work that she did with us this summer. Thanks a lot, Shivani. As of today, September 17th, there are 29,925,969 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 29 million 664,114 reported yesterday. 6,644,311 of those are in the United States, and that's up from 6,610,352 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 197,120 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 196,349 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And I'd like to continue that now. Headline, New Jersey firefighters' death from coronavirus was in the line of duty pension board rules. This was posted May 16th on NewJersey.com, and it was written by Rodrigo Torreon. The death of a Passaic firefighter from the complications with the coronavirus was formally declared an in the line of duty death by the state pension board, opening up lifetime benefits for his widow and their two children. More than a month after 33-year-old Israel Izzy Tolentino Jr. died from complications with the coronavirus, the state pension board ruled his death was in the line of duty, which entitles his widow, Maria Vasquez, and their daughter, Alani, 10, and son Israel III, 8, to pension and health benefits, said Passaic Fire Chief Patrick Trentacost. The decision by the state pension board will allow for Vasquez to receive more than 60% of Tolentino's most recent salary, said Passaic Mayor Hector Laura. It will also provide health insurance to both of Tolentino's children until they turn 26, and health insurance for life for Vasquez said Vasquez and Trentacost. The decision rendered May 11th at a board meeting is a small consolation for Vasquez, who is thankful that her husband's work will help protect and care for the family they started 
for years to come, even in his death. That's what he worked hard for when he was alive, Vasquez said. Everything he thought of was for the family to be taken care of. I'm happy that everything he worked for was not in vain. The process of securing benefits for Tolentino's family took time and investigative work from the Passaic Fire Department, said Trentacost. Although line of duty, although Trentacost declared Tolentino's death line of duty in a press conference just hours after Tolentino died, the department needed to prove it to the pension board. Proving Tolentino's death was in the line of duty had investigators following his final days responding to calls as a Passaic firefighter, a lifelong dream of his. Earlier in the pandemic, the investigation and the fire department calls were stymied by a lack of information, Trentacost said. The HIPAA law, until the state attorney general allowed fire chiefs the information, we had no clue what addresses were in question, Trentacost said. Initially, firefighters were responding to houses unaware if a resident had tested positive for COVID-19. And aside from the turnout gear that firefighters wore to calls, firefighters were not taking additional precautions into mid-March, the chief noted. Working with the health department and information later made available to fire chiefs, investigators were able to trace Tolentino's likely exposure to COVID-19 to a March 14th call on a gas rupture and gas leak at a house on Broadway, Trentacost said. Tolentino, along with other Passaic firefighters, flitted in and out of different buildings to help evacuate residents and check for gas levels. Occupants of several of the apartments that Tolentino entered ended up testing suspected positive for COVID-19, Trentacost said. Along with working as a firefighter, Tolentino was an EMT and volunteered at the city's Office of Emergency Management, his widow said. When he wasn't doing any of that, he would volunteer to help the homeless. Tolentino's round-the-clock sense of duty had Mayor Laura wondering when he wasn't on duty and prompted him to advocate for the line-of-duty death designation. On top of everything that the family would be dealing with, his wife and two children, the idea that they would not be taken care of was unacceptable, Laura said. They're going through enough, the mayor added, and we shouldn't have left it on their shoulders to try to fight the system because navigating the red tape and all of the bureaucracy that's involved in things like this is hard enough for those of us who are privy to the information, let alone for family members of lay individuals. Unlike many essential workers, First responders are often required to come in close contact with people potentially infected with the virus. Several law enforcement officers told New Jersey advanced media they are being forced to report to police headquarters, even those who are pregnant. The United States Senate passed the Safeguarding America's First Responders Act of 2020, Senate Bill 3607, introduced by U.S. Senator Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey, and U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican of Iowa which would also extend public safety officer death benefits to first responders whose death is caused by COVID-19. For Vasquez, the help that has arrived and the help that may be coming is welcome and serves to live up to Tolentino's desire to always provide for his family. But as the days distance the family from the moment Tolentino succumbed to the illness, she does not want him to be remembered for how he died. She wants the husband she met in church years ago to be remembered for the man he was. I don't want him to be remembered for coronavirus, Vasquez said. I want him to be remembered by the good that he was, how selfless he was, how he served others, even without a uniform.
Okay, let's turn to our discussion for today. And I'm really pleased to introduce my guest who agreed on short notice to appear today with so much wildland fire in the news. I'm really thrilled to bring Dr. Luke Montrose on COVID calls. He's an environmental toxicologist with research interests in public health, epigenetics, and chronic illness, particularly as it relates to vulnerable and understudied populations. He's an assistant professor at Boise State University. As an assistant professor in the Department of Community and Environmental Health, he's positioning himself to work collaboratively across campus and across Idaho with relevant stakeholders, including faculty, state and local officials, and community partners. The Montrose Lab, his lab, leverages expertise in epigenetics, community research, and exposure assessment to better understand the molecular basis of toxicant-induced disease risk throughout the life course. Dr. Montrose's research portfolio reflects his passion for studying human health through multiple lenses, ranging from community health to molecular biology. His recent studies have used cutting-edge technology to measure exposure-induced epigenetic changes related to diet, air pollution, heavy metals, and endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and related these changes to humans and animal health effects. He's also been very active in science communication lately and has some wonderful articles up, which I hope you'll check out on the conversation and we'll get to some discussion of those. Luke, thanks so much for making time to come on COVID calls today. An absolute pleasure, thank you. So let's start the way we usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling in from and, and what's the COVID-19 situation there today. Uh, so Boise, Idaho. And um, so we've uh, per capita been one of the more active uh, COVID-19 states, but uh, our numbers relative to the other states are fairly low, but that's just a, an effective population. Um, so I, I think that uh, we just came out of our phase four here in Boise. And so uh, our bars uh, in our, our county, Ada County here, um, just opened up. Um, and uh, so I, I guess you could say that we're open for business, uh, but I think everyone is uh, only cautiously optimistic that we're out of the woods. What's happening at the university? Is, are the students back? Yeah, so our uh, president, uh, President Trump, uh, T-R-O-M-P, uh, President Trump uh, ha has been one of the leaders uh, in Idaho um, thinking about how we can open up uh, the university safely. And uh, her, her communication should be commend, commended uh, all throughout the summer. We were in constant communication with her about what the plan was and um, how they were going to move forward. And what they ended up doing was um, to try to save uh, some of what is the college experience for the, the underclassmen. They prioritized the freshman and sophomore classes um, and uh, to be on campus. And then they uh, prioritized the upperclassmen uh, classes to be more virtual. And this give, gave them the ability to spread those students, those underclassmen students out across the campus into bigger classrooms where they were able to achieve the social distancing. Um, and so far, uh, everything has been going fairly well. We have had some uh, coronavirus cases on campus, but they were able to contain those and do contract tracing um, and let those folks know that they had been potentially um, exposed. So, so far, everything has, that has been put in into place structurally has worked. So um, the politics of Idaho are, are not um, readily understood by me. I know it tends to be a conservative state, but I also know it's a, it's 
it's ideologically diverse state, uh, yeah. and it's a geographically diverse state. It's maybe a place that a lot of Americans know less about. It hasn't been on the front page too much of some of these mask wars and other kinds of things. Um, I wonder if you could make any comment about how the politics have played out in terms of masks or access to tests, uh, closures, and things like that. So we, so our, I'll, I'll focus in on our governors, uh, our governor and our uh, lieutenant governor. And um, I'm learning all of this as well. I've been in Idaho now for a little over a year and a half. And, and what I've come to find out uh, and was highlighted by this, uh, this pandemic is the, the idea that our governors don't run on the same ticket. Um, a governor and lieutenant governor don't run on the same ticket. And so the governor took a center left stance on uh, it shouldn't be called that, but essentially he was for the use of mask for the uh, cor uh, quarantine orders um, and the like. Um, and he was actually berated by his lieutenant governor, who essentially made uh, this a political lightning rod for herself to potentially become the next governor. She's essentially running for governor while being his lieutenant governor. So, I, I mean, you couldn't write this stuff up uh, in a novel. It's It's been quite the ride. That's amazing. So if I understand this right, um, it's, it's divided government to a certain extent within the same executive office. That's right. And they've taken different stances on mask wearing, for example. That's right. Uh, mask wearing. And then also um, the governor wanted to, uh, we had progressed to our phase three, uh, but uh, because of the uh, benchmarks that he set, uh, we were no longer meeting those and he wanted to revert to phase two. And that was one of the things that she also um, took a stand on and said that he shouldn't be allowed to do that unilaterally. Um, and he did. Um, and so she's going to carry that forward, I think, as a, as a platform issue for herself to become elected. You know, a few years ago after the um, in Oklahoma, there was the tornadoes you might remember that hit more um, Oklahoma. And um, that actually partially fed into the governor's race there in Oklahoma. And, and part of the governor's race actually hinged on whether or not there should be uh, requirements in this code for basically shelters in buildings. And and sometimes you think of these, these, you would have never imagined, just like you're describing, that a mask in this case becomes this lightning rod that will maybe be the center of the next governor's race. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm living through it, but I, and yet I still don't believe it. And um, if you don't mind me asking, you're not, you, you're not born or raised in Idaho. You're from somewhere else. I am. Uh, I've ping ponged back and forth across the country as I traveled uh, traveled for schooling. Uh, I grew up in a rural community, a conservative rural community in Ohio, um, and then uh, went to uh, do my PhD at the University of Montana in Missoula, which is a blue pocket in a red state, very similar to Boise. Mm -hmm. uh, but before I came to Boise, I went to uh, uh, the uh, University of Michigan, and I lived uh, just outside of Ann Arbor. Um, so uh, pretty diverse areas, really, and uh, obviously diverse uh, topographically and, and geographically. Fascinating. You've lived in, in what we tend to think of red states or conservative states, but never in the South. And, and so that's a, a sort of another sort of take on this. And I think the politics around COVID-19, as you say, we shouldn't be talking about mask wearing as a center left or center right thing, but of course we are, and that's and that's where we are with it. Thanks for that grounding. Could you say a little bit more about your 
sort of research background? I mean, what were the, the initial questions that got you, you know, excited to go through all this research and, and uh, getting the degrees and, the, and, and taking on the work that you do now? What are the, the core questions that are interesting to you? Well, I first like to say anytime I have a platform like this, I, I want to empower uh, my my uh, the younger generation uh, who's maybe struggling with the idea of going to college uh, because uh, they're the first one in their family. I, sh I will say that I'm the a first generation college student that also went on to do a Ph.D., a postdoc and eventually become a professor at a university. So um, the, the path that I took was uh, to try to uh, go to vet school. Um, and I initially uh, bumped into a roadblock with that at the Ohio State University. It's just very difficult to get in. Um, but thankfully, that led me in the direction of research. I ended up at a biomedical research center um, just outside of my hometown. Um, I lived in London, Ohio, and this was in West Jefferson, Ohio. And at that facility, we were doing uh, what I would classify as counterterrorism research. We were trying to protect our troops overseas from weapons of mass destruction by playing out these uh, scenarios um, in animal models and try to understand how we might be able to pr better protect our soldiers. Um, and what I didn't realize at the time was that that was toxicology research. I, I really had never grasped that term. Um, but as I learned more about it, I decided that that's what I wanted to do a PhD in. Um, and I contacted the University of Montana that has an amazing environmental toxicology program, uh, not really knowing what I was going to be focused on. I ended up in a lab that studied uh, air pollution, specifically how indoor air pollution produced from uh, heating, uh, wood heating, in, which is a huge thing in Montana because wood is cheap yeah, and propane and gas are more expensive. Um, we were trying to understand in that lab how uh, indoor sources of air pollution impact uh, asthma exacerbation among children. So I think that's where I initially got this idea that wood smoke could be a potentially adverse um, or could potentially produce adverse outcomes. Uh, and uh, then I ended up in Boise and I found a little niche where, you know, this is a great place to do wildland firefighting research because we have the National Interagency Fire Center based right here in Boise. And there seemed to be a need on campus so I immediately started to position myself where I could apply my knowledge of the health consequences of being exposed to wood smoke to the occupational exposures of a wildland firefighter. I see. Can you say a little bit about the National Interagency Fire Center? People may not be as familiar with that. Yeah, so they essentially are a organization that's been tasked by the federal government to organize wildland firefighting resources across the West. Um, and so they have some of their own uh, firefighters, and then they also organize firefighters through a number of different agencies. Think uh, Bureau of Land Management, um, uh, and then the different states that have their own firefighters. They they organize resources, th that being the firefighters themselves, as well as things like uh, you know helicopters, trucks, those types of things.
that's that's so I mean it's really something to have that there in your in your backyard. I mean you're privy to all, all kind of interesting conversations, I'm sure, and and uh, policy is being formed there as well. I take it. That's right. Yeah, they they actually also uh, deal with all of the training, um, and so I was really fascinated. This a little tidbit of information. I was fascinated to find out that the National Interagency Fire Center and the National um, a coordinating group for wildland firefighters, um, they didn't put uh, educational material about the deleterious effects of smoke inhalation in their training manuals um, up until about the late 2017, early 2018 time period. And to me, to be a wildland firefighter where your job is to breathe smoke, essentially, I, sh I shouldn't exactly say it like that, but that is part of their job is to deal with being in a smoky environment and conduct the routine jobs that they do, that it wasn't part of that training manual that th that, that exposure may cause deleterious health effects until within the last three or four years. But isn't, I mean, isn't smoke inhalation a major cause of injury and death for wildland firefighters? It certainly is for urban firefighters. So... I think the majority of the research I've seen suggests that um, physical injury, uh, acute physical injury is the uh, either due to fire or due to fallen trees or other equipment related things. That's the number one uh, uh, cause of, of death and injury uh, among firefighters. We actually know very little about the chronic uh, or excuse me, about the long-term health implications of being a wildland firefighter. And that's partly due to the fact that these are seasonal transient workers traditionally that move across the country picking up seasonal work. One, you know, a guy could be a, uh, a ski instructor in Maine for half the year and then the other half of the year fight fires. That guy becomes very difficult to track as far as his health goes. Uh, over time. And so we don't actually have very good information on the long-term health implications. I, I wouldn't have anticipated when I started doing COVID calls in March, I, I, I did think we would do a wildfire discussion, but it's been, it's become a major theme. I talked with Max Moritz, who's at the University of California in Santa Barbara earlier in the, in the summer. I talked with Glenn Corbett on September 11, and just earlier this week, I talked with Erica Fisher, who's at Oregon State, and Erica Kuligowski, who's on her way to Australia, and Jim Whittington, who's out in Oregon. Um, and these fires are so tremendous, and they've converged with the COVID-19 pandemic. It, I think this is a conversation we're going to continue to have, but we haven't talked about smoke explicitly, and I'm so pleased you could make time to have this conversation. If you and, and I have written, I've written a lot about fire, about urban fire, but uh, not about smoke and, and not really about the sort of health impacts of, of these kinds of exposures that you're, that you're looking at. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind just start taking us through a little bit. Um, when we talk about smoke in the wildland fire setting, what are we really talking about? And, and I just want to give a little um, just a line here from one of your recent pieces that's in um, – that's in the conversation. This one was published and you can find this easily online and I'll tweet it. I'll tweet it out later. This one appeared on, I should have the date here. I'm sorry. Um, 
you will remember the date, I'm sure, a little bit earlier in the year, but it said, um, a friend texted me recently after going for a jog in the foothills near Boise, Idaho, writing, my lungs are burning, explain what's happening. Good question, and you're the right person to ask, so what was happening? Yeah, I've actually uh, based a lot of my recent publications off of just anecdotal uh, conversations with friends that have launched me into a, a research firestorm. Uh, I had an initial answer for her, which was, um, listen, if, if you would have just looked on the Idaho Department of Environmental Quality's website, Twitter feed, Facebook, if you would have just looked before you went out, you would have seen that we were in a, uh, depending on what side of the city you were in, a yellow or an orange AQI warning level, which is either moderate or uh, unhealthy. Um, and so that was my initial answer to her was, hey, it's smoky outside. Um, even if it's even if it's only, I think she, she ran around 10 o'clock in the morning. And even if it's 10 o'clock in the morning, that doesn't really, the time of day has a little bit of an impact on the smoke, but there's still smoke outside. The other thing I mentioned to her was, we live in Boise and I think that was in uh, the beginning of August. It was going to be 103 that day, and it was already 90-some degrees. So um, the EPA has some information on their website about the, the, the mixture of heat and smoke and how that can be particularly impactful to your lungs. That was the short answer. The long answer was uh, there's a lot of things in smoke that you don't want in your lungs. Um, there are thousands of individual chemical constituents. And one of the most important ones that we think about uh, in research and as well as in the, on the regulatory side. So if you see I, uh, Idaho Department of Environmental Quality's website or CAL FIRE or uh, any of the California, Oregon, Washington advisories, they're going to be honing in on one chemical constituent and that's PM 2.5 or particulate matter less than 2.5 micrometers in diameter. These are really small particles, about 1 50th the size of a grain of sand. Mm -hmm. And the reason that we use these as a metric for health and for regula regulatory reasons is because that's the cutoff at which uh, these small particles, anything smaller than that, can get into the deepest parts of your lung, into these little air sacs. Uh, and those air sacs are uh, involved in passing oxygen from the lungs to the blood. So very important physiological part of your body. You don't want foreign stuff in those parts of the body. Um, and so that was the long answer uh, that I wrote up in the conversation piece. Uh, I spared my friend the long answer. I, I've, I've tried to do a better job of um, understanding my audience and when they start to glaze over, but uh, hopefully your audience is uh, receptive to the nitty gritty details. They definitely are. And so let's get into a little bit about terminology, because we were talking about this earlier in the week when we had the um, initial discussion about some of the problems even with terminology like wildfire these days, because so many of these fires are not, these are not, you know, we have this idea in our mind of a forest fire. It takes place in some distant place and some, as you said, sort of itinerant firefighters go in there and and deal with that, but it doesn't come, if it burns up some structures, their, their cabins deep in the woods or something like that. That's not what we're seeing in the main these days from Arizona to Washington to Idaho, is it? I mean, we're seeing now fires that are moving through wildland urban interface spaces and even into urban spaces. So I wonder, first of all, about 
the terminology wildfire and what it's hiding? Well, um, so as someone who's trying to understand what these particles are doing to our lungs and what what are the acute and chronic uh, potential impacts of this, it becomes very difficult to do that when you realize that the particles change. The particles are chemically different depending on their source. So if there's a fire burning in Idaho and it's burning on the eastern side of our state, likely burning a lot of grasses, a lot of uh, maybe sagebrush, that chemical characterization or the composition of that fire wildly different than the fires burning maybe in the western side of the state where we have more timber. Now throw in uh, the, the WUI, the wildland urban interface, where now we have a contribution of building materials, uh, things that uh, things like uh, uh, wood and uh, tar and uh, the and the like. Um, now we have a lot more chemicals to deal with in that uh, overall spectrum of what makes up wildfire smoke. And so when someone says, what are the health implications of wildfire smoke? That's a really difficult question to answer nice. because, well, where did it come from? And how far away is the person who's potentially breathing it? Another thing that I mentioned in my uh, piece there is the idea of aging. So wildfire smoke that comes out of the fire, if you measure it at the source, can be different than that same smoke that travels across the continent over to, let's say it most goes from California to New York. The smoke, once it gets to New York, has had time to mix with all the other chemicals in our atmosphere to be impacted by UV uh, radiation. All of those things can actually, studies have shown, make the air make those uh, air pollutants more toxic. Thankfully though, they've also had time to dilute. And so although the if you compare to apples to apples, one volume of that smoke that compared to one volume of aged smoke may itself be more toxic. The nice thing is, is it's thankfully diluted across the atmosphere with all of the oxygen that's there. Um, and so it's, it's, although it's apples to apples, more toxic, it's diluted. So uh, there's a lot of things to think about when you think about what is in wildfire smoke and what are people actually being exposed to. There's a lot of nuance that people need to understand. I mean, it's so fascinating to hear you sort of talk about it with that level of, like you said, of that, of that nuance. How then are the kinds of guidelines that may be in place to help protect firefighters how are they changing are they changing with because this the, the development of the wildland urban interface um, is a relatively recent phenomenon um, other people could characterize it better than I could but let's say half a century that people have been pretty aggressively moving into those spaces in California and and it, certainly in the Pacific Northwest and Arizona and I presume also in Idaho um, so if that's changing, is policy and practice for protection keeping up with that? So let's talk about protections for a second. And we can we can get some insights if we compare structure firefighters to wildland firefighters. So if you were to look at we can all we can all imagine in our head what a structure firefighter looks like. So they're wearing turnout gear. They're wearing a, a helmet. They're wearing a mask. 
They have oxygen tanks on their backs that the acronym for the uh, air purification or oxygen system that they wear is called an SCBA. And at any rate, they're, they're being provided clean air when they're working in that structure to put out that fire. And if we think about what their job is, a fire happens, they're called to the fire, they try to put out the fire, a long structure fire might last several hours, maybe in even into the night and into the next day. So, you know, let's say eight hours. Compare that to wildland firefighters who are working on average a 14 hour day and they're not working at one structure. They may be moving up an entire mountain. They need to be very mobile. They need to be able to uh, go long distances. These types of air uh, air purification or air uh, uh, oxygen providing equipment just aren't feasible in that environment. So let's move from there. What's our next option? Well, we could provide them with an N95. We've all heard a lot about N95 masks now, so we're probably all experts, but just to reiterate, these are masks that can filter out uh, about 95% of those particles that are 0.3 microns to 2.5 microns. So in that range that I've been talking about, and that's where they get their name N95, is because they filter out 95% of those particles. You need to have a really good fit to your face to wear an N95. And as we can imagine, you, you can be a male, a male or female and be a wildland firefighter, but the majority of them are male and the majority of them are scruffy looking guys like me who have beards or at least five o'clock uh, shadows. Those masks are not gonna work for them even by the end of the day, let alone when they go out into the wilderness for 14, 20 some days at a time and they're getting airdropped food out of helicopters. The N95 becomes infeasible right. for them in that case. So what we're left with is uh, wildland firefighters typically wear a bandana over their face. That's really the only protection they have. And even a wetted bandana provides minimal, if any, uh, um, mitigation uh, uh, from these uh, small PM 2.5 and small uh, the smaller particles. Um, so until we have some new age uh, uh, air filtration that wildland firefighters can wear that allow large volumes of air in, uh, protect them from the PM 2.5 and make a seal around a potentially bearded face. Uh, we're kind of stuck with this idea that they're going to be exposed to smoke. So then all we can do is track their exposure and try to limit it where possible. So that can be things like placement of the camps that they stay in so that at the end of the day when they've done, when they're done with their 14 hour shift hopefully they at least get a 10 hour reprieve from that smoke it's interesting when we think about you know um it's a dangerous job certainly urban firefighters and they have most of them have unions and they have national fire protection association and and fire chiefs and other organizations that advocate for safety and have for a long time you've described the wildland fire service as a different, I mean, it's a different set, it's a different kind of occupation. Who's advocating for them? Who's advocating for the N95 so that they're not just uh, taking the bandana out of their back pocket and wetting it and putting it over their face and not breathing whatever's burning up in the suburb outside of, you know, some city in Oregon or a city in California? 
So this is this is a really interesting question and one that I really dove into when I first became was becoming oriented with the wildland firefighter community. Um, and one of the things that I found fascinating was um, right after th there was the recent 9-11 uh, uh, first responders, their health care was coming. Uh, the, the bill that was providing them health care uh, was in question for a while. And there was a lot of uh, petitions and protests at the Capitol building um, in Washington, D.C., lots of uh, star power there trying to advocate for them. And what came out of that was that those first responders um, got their health care uh, renewed, or at least there was a promise to do that. Another interesting thing that came out of that was uh, President Trump uh, signed into uh, a law or uh, signed into action this idea that they were going to start a uh, first responder uh uh, health uh, tracking system. And this was going to be specific to firefighters and police officers. I don't remember the exact name of that, uh, that bill or law or uh, action item that he signed in, but it happened in 2018. Initially, I don't know what's going to come of this because there was a public comment period and that public comment period is closed and they haven't actually come out with an official direction or plan for this, for this process. But there was a question as to whether or not wildland firefighters would actually be included in that tracking uh, mm. uh, repository. And I think that that's really important. And that's the next step we need to take is to understand long term health. We need to be looking for long term health uh, implications. Um, and so I would say that wildland firefighters have been on the fringe of advocacy uh, this push for advocacy for first responders and hopefully they don't fall off that fringe because this is really their opportunity because for a long time they've not been advocated for because they fall into this seasonal worker category. Uh, they don't get a lot of the same benefits that you would expect other uh, government employees to get, whether they're at a state institute, state organization or federal organization. I hope that as we move to a point where fire season is lasting more than half the year that we're hiring these folks on as full-time employee, full-time benefited employees. And with that tracking their health into the future. Just a reminder to everybody, you're listening to COVID Calls and we're talking about fire and smoke and the health of firefighters and the health of the public today with Luke Montrose from Boise State University. Um, so everything we've talked about up to now could have been in a sort of a normal uh, fire season, I suppose. And you very patiently broken down the different complexities of it for me, which I really appreciate. So let's layer in COVID. And just a quote, so your the initial conversation piece that I cited from was from August 20th, and people can find that. And uh, I want to read just a, a quote from one that, that you published actually on September 11. You said, two forces of nature are colliding in the Western United States, and wildland firefighters are caught in the middle. So continuing what we were just talking about, um, you know, the, the occupational risks and hazards um, for these workers now we bring COVID-19 into the situation. And the obituary I read, you know, um, the firefighter from Passaic, Izzy Tolentino, 
his risk was because of the people he was interacting with. Um, right. And of course he would face other risks, but not, not the COVID risk. Help us understand how these firefighters out in the West are actually, their health is colliding with COVID. There's two main uh, avenues that we can take with this. We'll take them both um, and I'll, I'll, I'll outline both of them first. The, the first sort of idea here is that firefighters are being exposed to smoke and that part of their job may leave them more vulnerable to severe complications of coronavirus. The second part is the idea that these firefighters are housed in large firefighting camps during the season and the dynamic nature of those camps, uh, personnel coming in and out, fires dying off and new ones starting and new camps needing to be erected um, and personnel being shared between camps, shared between states, uh, shared between agencies, um, sometimes shared between continents. We sent firefighters to Australia during those uh, brush, uh, the, the bushfires that they had there. So um, I think most of that intercontinental uh, sharing of firefighters has stopped for now uh, because of the coronavirus issues. But um, uh, suffice to say, there's, uh, there's issues with the camps. So let's get into that first. So mm -hmm. um, the makeup of a firefighter camp is uh, normally what happens. There's a fire uh, off in the distance. They try to set up a, 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 a base camp where these firefighters are going to be housed, where hopefully they get a reprieve away from the smoke. This is hopefully in a safe area. Um, you'd like it to be uh, upwind and not downwind uh, of the of the fire, both for the safety of the fire, also for the safety of the smoke. Um, this is tens, hundreds, sometimes depending on the size of the fire, thousands of personnel, all congregated in one area. Uh, they're going off and doing their tasks for the day, but then they're coming back and they're eating and bunking um, in, in, a, in an area together. Um, and so huge opportunity there for transmission of the virus. And these are not typical situations conducive to frequent hand washing and social distancing, the types of mitigation factors that we expect the public to be uh, participating in during the coronavirus uh, outbreak. Um, so early on, I had uh, I and others sort of uh, brought wanted to bring awareness to the idea that these camps were going to be a source of coronavirus transmission. And thankfully, the groups like uh, the National Inter Interagency Fire Center uh, immediately took action um, and put out guidance. And they didn't have to start from scratch, which is interesting. They were able to work off of. Uh, the structure that they had already formulated for a very a different but similar uh, respiratory infection that the firefighters call Camp Crud. Mm -hmm. and this is an upper respiratory uh, combined lower respiratory tract infection that gets passed around fire camps almost yearly. And it seems to ramp up at the end of fire season, which goes along with this idea that uh, repeated expo exposure to smoke may leave the firefighters more vulnerable uh, to infections. They already had uh, plans in place of how to uh, contain, quarantine, clean, uh, and how to prevent the spread of coronavirus. And almost immediately, they took those action items and put them into play 
and revamp them for coronavirus. And so thankfully they already had some of the pieces of that playbook in place. Because, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to transition to the next avenue. If you want to uh, kind of clarify Please. anything. Well, just, yeah, just to follow up with one thing. So this, the Camp Crud, I mean, even just the terminology, it downplays the seriousness of it a little bit. I mean, it just seems like, well, I picked up a cold or something like that. But what you're describing there and the measures that were already in place that could then be used to intercept coronavirus um, transmission, again, speaks to the sort of underlying risk there, particularly season after season. Mm -hmm. I mean, if a firefighter gets camp crud one year, okay, but then year two, year three, year four, it seems like that those are the kind of things that you're concerned about as the sort of slow disaster of wildfire continues and people are exposed year by year to that smoke. Is there some tracking so, I mean, we're not even talking about coronavirus here. Is there some tracking of how frequently people get those um, infections? I don't know how far back it goes, but the answer is is yes. Um, I've seen a couple reports out of the state of Oregon. They have um, what's called the, the lessons learned page. Um, and I believe that's, it's either linked on the, the NIFSI website, or it may actually be a facet of NIFSI, but it's essentially a way for agencies to discuss issues and solutions uh, and and hopefully uh, provide lessons learned to, to other folks so they don't have to uh, reinvent the wheel. One thing you said I think is important to point out here, and that's this idea that Camp Crud downplays the severity of this, this upper and lower respiratory tract infection, which seems to be a reoccurring thing in the firefighter community. And this is a common theme uh, among firefighters is these guys and gals are the type of people that put their head down and they do their job and they've almost been trained they've almost been trained to to just you know don't talk about your issues just do your job and they've been trying it's it's a it's a slow process but they're trying to retrain these folks yeah. to be better aware of the short and long term health consequences of breathing in smoke, which hopefully has played into a more receptive nature of uh, these coronavirus mitigation strategies, because uh, these are these are folks who just go out and they do their job under all circum any and all circumstances. And you don't necessarily want that if you need folks to be uh, self-aware enough to know when like what their body's telling them, especially if you need people to, for example, at a firefighter camp be aware enough to say, I don't feel good today. I don't think I should be part of the crew. That will help them not pass coronavirus around. But if you have everyone be, trying to be a macho man going out and fighting fires anyways, that's a great way to spread coronavirus. Um, and one last thing I'll say is as we, as we get to the end of fire season, when we normally see Camp Crud ramp up, it's going to be very difficult for personnel in charge of controlling and containing coronavirus to not want to be conservative about taking someone out of the field who presents initially with what are probably camp crud symptoms because they won't be able to rapidly distinguish between camp crud and coronavirus. This has the potential to deplete an already depleted wild and firefighting uh, a pool of, of folks. So 
Um, this could be something that we need to watch out for in the in the waning uh, weeks and months of the fire season. Well, I'll let you get to your second point, but just to point out one thing, that culture shift is really a powerful insight that you've made. And I think it's one that resonates with people who studied September 11 and the firefighters who worked on the pile there, many of whom refused um, breathing protection. And there was a lot of discussion in New York about that. And, and as you cited earlier, the rallying around, some have rallied around those firefighters and their long-term health impacts. And, and many of those health impacts were breathing what was coming out of that smoking pile in the weeks after as they looked for human remains. And that culture shift, um, I don't think it was ever, I don't think it was ever effectuated. It was too short of a period of time. There was something heroic about being there and there was a pretty lively debate among firefighters about whether or not you, you should or shouldn't wear the breathing protection. Some argued strongly for it and others said, no, I'm here, I'm gonna do this job and I'm not gonna wear it. That culture doesn't change just because some guidelines come from uh, EPA, do they? One of the uh, quotes that I will never forget was uh, in a room at NIFC talking with uh, some uh, uh, career firefighters uh, they had a, a, a quote that they wanted me to know about. And they said, this is the type of culture that we're trying to shift is uh, there's a saying among firefighters. Uh, if, if two guys cough at the same time, they look at each other and say, well, we'll cough it out after Christmas. Mm. And it's this idea that right. they all know that the smoke is impacting them, but it's this idea that like, we'll deal with it later and it'll right. be okay. Yeah, and I think the that's now. shifting in their minds where they're saying it's okay to recognize that this job is dangerous on multiple levels. Let's work together to find solutions that limits these exposures. Um, and, and I think that that's a, a really smart thing to do from the top down. These folks who are career firefighters, who these younger guys actually look up to and respect. I think that's that's where that culture shift is going to start. You were going to say a little bit more then. I mean, we've got the camp issues, we've got camp crud, and now we've also got coronavirus exposure, possibly. Why is it worse for firefighters? Yeah, so I have a couple studies that I want to reference that I looked at as I was building my um, my knowledge of uh, what I wanted to know. What's the plausibility that wildfire smoke may lead to more severe coronavirus uh, symptoms? And so... Uh, I, I start the story back at, with uh, some Italian scientists that published a study looking at uh, air pollution generally. This is not wildfire smoke. And they showed that um, they were exposing cells to smoke and those cells uh, became immune suppressed. Uh, a few years later, a group of researchers at the University of Montana were able to show this in animals and they used uh, wildfire smoke specifically here. What they showed was repeated exposure to smoke uh, followed with the animals being immune suppressed and they honed in on a specific cell type in those animals called the macrophage. These are, you can think of them like uh, Pac-Men. They go around the body gobbling up foreign material and either they uh, are able to destroy that material, or if they can't destroy it, they sort of self-destruct and they destroy it that way. They were actually able to show in that study from the University of Montana that those cells were uh, no longer capable of doing their job at 100% following repeated exposure to smoke. Uh, 
Um, there's a recent uh, study of primates that were exposed in an outdoor enclosure in California as babies. And as adolescents, those primates had uh, dysfunctional immune systems. So a little bit more information here coming in about uh, the long-term effects of exposure to smoke on your immune system. Um, and then combine that with a study that just came out of Montana recently uh, in the last month that looked at 10 years of wildfire data and overlaid that with the health data from that period when the fires were going on, as well as months later. And they showed that there's a little bit of a lag, but there is a direct relationship between a bad wildfire season and an uptick in flu rates uh, in the months following the exposure to smoke. So we take all of this data and we combine it and we try to interpret it and say, it's at least plausible that wildfire smoke is entering the lungs, potentially suppressing the immune system and leaving both the public, but especially firefighters because of the amount of smoke that they're exposed to, leaving them vulnerable to uh, viral infections, including uh, coronavirus. So, I mean, those findings are really important and, and they, they dovetail with findings we heard about uh, earlier in the summer um, about the problems that people who live in fence line communities anywhere in the United States, I, I think particularly concentrations in Southeast Texas and people who live in Cancer Alley in Louisiana, who also exhibit sort of permanent colds, asthma rates way higher than the average American. Um, that they were also going to have this greater susceptibility to COVID-19 because they have this already sort of underlying um, ongoing uh, lung agitation. Have you looked at that uh, overlap? I mean, there's something provocative there in that overlap. We have different geographies, different people, and yet this sort of compound disaster is affecting them both. Yeah, two things I'd say about that. One is if we look at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health study that came out, it was a preprint, um, so it still needs to be verified uh, and peer-reviewed. But um, they said that as you go across the country, county to county, if you move from one county to the next and that next county has higher air pollution, chronic exposure to air pollution, those counties had uh, more uh, death due to coronavirus. So I think that plays into what you just said. And then I saw this firsthand when I was in Ann Arbor and we traveled to Detroit to meet with community members there. Um, this is really an environmental justice issue uh, because these communities aren't just being impacted by particulate matter. Oftentimes, these are the same places that are food deserts. Uh, they're being impacted by uh, particulate matter that's being that's coming from industry. They're also being impacted, as we see in Michigan and other places, by uh, poor water supply. Um, so it, it's, it's really hard when you have these cumulative exposures in these uh, uh, vulnerable uh, communities um, to really put your finger on what it is that they're being exposed to that's actually raising their risk. But suffice to say that there are communities around the country that are uh, being hammered by environmental exposures and it's leaving them at risk to these types of pandemics. Um, and this is a this is something that we're gonna have to change probably from a policy level, uh, but also folks like me who are trying to do research on this, um, hopefully we can just try to bring awareness 
to the politicians and others uh, to to understand that that these communities need our help. None of this is is healthy for the general public to the extent that something like a general public exists. But let's just say, you know, average middle class Americans who live in places that are being exposed to more and more uh, wildland fire smoke or more smoke in the wildland urban interface. It just doesn't see. I mean, it's it's sort of intuitively just going to become more dangerous for them. It, it, am I right? Or are people not receiving the kind of exposures that would trigger the concerns that we've just been talking about? for environmental justice communities or firefighters. Uh, so are you, are you are you saying that moving forward, um, are, you, are you saying that different communities are gonna be exposed or the communities that are being exposed right now aren't the same communities that are fence line communities? I'm curious about you know, you know folks who are just living in places that are seeing more frequent exposure to wildfire. Um, and not just the ones we were just talking about. So we, obviously for fence line communities, this is a longstanding concern and this is just exacerbating it. But what just for an average person like me who happens to live in a place where our fires are becoming more common, is this really dangerous? So um, I'll use Boise as an example. So uh, one thing that I think is problematic is as a state, we could do a really good job of forest management. We could do a really good job of, uh, of firefighting and we could put out all of our fires and we could still be impacted by smoke from our neighboring states. Mm. Uh, and so I, I would take your comment and just point out that this is something that we need to work on as a country uh, because smoke knows no boundaries. It doesn't stop at state lines. And right now the aerosols from California uh, are being taken all the way over as far as Europe. Um, so I think that regardless of whether you're on the front line of the fire or whether you are uh, a member of society on the other side of uh, the country that you're watching this on the nightly news, we all should, uh, we all should educate ourselves on the effects of air pollution, specifically wildfire smoke and uh, be empowered uh, to bring about change in uh, whether it's, you know, uh, wildland, uh, management, uh, or whether it's um, the protection of firefighters, because the next wildland fire might not be necessarily in the West. There's a lot of talk about how wildfires could begin to spread into even the New England area if we see continued drought in the future. So these lessons that we're learning in the West right now may be applicable to more of the country than we can even imagine. Uh, so I think being proactive is probably our best foot forward at this point. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking to Luke Montrose. Um, we're almost up on time. Luke, can you spare a couple more minutes for one more question or do you? Sure. Okay, I don't know if you have a class waiting for you right now. Sometimes I take <laughs> too much time. We get going on these really interesting discussions, but um, I, can you talk to us just a little bit about what kind of things are on your mind about um, kids returning to school. I mean, obviously there's been the COVID-19 concerns with that, and that's in the newspapers all over the country, but now we have to layer in these smoke concerns and wildfire concerns as well. Take us into the, that sort of decision-making a little bit. Yeah, I think it's a great segue thinking about people on, on different sides of the country, because um, when it came to opening up the schools and dealing with the COVID-19 crisis, which I think was top of mind for a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues 
who are very intelligent folks who are thinking from a toxicological standpoint. They're thinking from an infectious standpoint. They were, uh, they were putting out guidance or they were uh, uh, supporting guidance on Twitter and other places uh, that was uh, in uh, support of uh, these educators and these people who are decision makers in schools um, to, to take on uh, ideas like, let's teach our kids outside. Wouldn't that be a nice way to get around the idea of kids being able to go to school, but not, but being able to uh, be able to properly social distance? Um, they also mentioned things like, well, let's open up the windows of the school and increase airflow, increase air exchanges, dilute the virus indoors. All of those things are fantastic ideas until you realize the unique uh, challenges that we have here in the West, I'll point out that the majority of rural schools, K through 12 in Montana and Idaho, because those are the places that I know of uh, uh, most uh, specifically, a lot of those K through 12 schools don't have air conditioning. So in the summer months, their go-to air conditioning uh, you know, solution is to open up the windows, but they know that they shouldn't do that when there's wildfire activity uh, and they're downwind. So they have policies in place for limiting time outdoors, uh, canceling recess, canceling after school activities like sports, and also keeping windows and doors closed. So they're, they have those guidelines in place, but now they're getting other guidelines from other policymakers uh, across the country that to protect against coronavirus, they should open up windows, be outside more. And so I was trying to raise awareness um, as we came into the school year that the, the policymakers should take into consideration that uh, schools on the East Coast may not have the same challenges as schools on the West Coast and that the schools here in the Northwest were going to have to take a critical look at whether or not they could utilize those strategies uh, as a means of opening school back up if they if they were going if the whether or not they were going to open school back up hinged on the idea of being able to open up windows mm. and then a wildfire happened what were they going to do so i wouldn't want to be put in that situation that's a hard choice to make and i wanted to raise awareness um, so that those decision makers at least had the ability to to take that into consideration uh, that's a really important point and as you as you say you know um, risk looks different from washington um, than it might look from from Boise or in Corvallis or, or wherever else. And um, it's, it's also you wouldn't think you would necessarily, you would think that people would would consider that or that would come into the conversation. And yet so many of the things we've taken for granted in terms of common sense thinking have kind of uh, um, slipped past us, in, in, not because people are necessarily in bad faith, but this is a lot of information to try to process in, in real time and make policy, literally in the face of disaster. Um, I want to just, you know, there's so many other things we didn't really get a chance to talk about climate uh, change. I mean, obviously these things, everything, that's the background for everything we've been talking about, climate change and more greater frequency and intensity of these fires. Um, and also the, the way that your work, you talked about your first inspiration being indoor, indoor pollution, which I have a very limited understanding of this, but this must be an enormous problem in uh, in the global south, where cooking fires are still done indoors or quasi indoors. So, will you be expanding your research to 
other settings? I mean, can you? I could see this this overlap with fire and coronavirus opening the real new vistas of research for you. Yeah, I mean, we can imagine a situation where the research we're doing gives insights into uh, any setting where biomass combustion is occurring and the lungs are being exposed and uh, what are the long-term consequences of that. Um, I, I've, I've uh, taken the liberty of reading comments in some after some of my publications and um, it never fails that someone will bring up uh, the issue that well, you're, why are you focusing on wildland firefighters or community exposures to smoke when it occurs only seasonally when you have these folks who are, um, you know, you can, uh, we all probably can picture, you know, a woman uh, in uh, the, you know, um, uh, I would, you know, a lot of the African communities where they have these little cook huts and they're cooking over the cook hut and maybe they have three or four generations uh, inside the cook hut and one of the generations maybe is either on the back or the front of the woman because she's tasked with both childcare and cooking right. and it's all done over this smoky uh, open pit burning uh, stove. 100% um, I'm aware that that's occurring. I'm studying what's uh, front and center in my backyard right here but I think given the opportunity we do have folks here um, at Boise State University who have taken the task on of going to um, these African communities and trying to both educate and also provide new solutions. I would point you to uh, Dr. Uwe Reichel's work where he went down and uh, with the help of a uh, entrepreneur and engineer, they, they built an, a new style of stove that was efficient and took it down and showed them how to use that. Uh, and they were able to show that not only was it efficient at uh, reducing smoke exposure, but also it was received well. It worked better than the stove they had, and they were able to produce it fairly cheaply and in that um, in that community. Um, so I think those are the types of opportunities where it really takes uh, cross collaborations and interdisciplinary creative thought to uh, bring about these new ideas. And I'm just one guy at one institution looking at one problem. And if I focused only on that, uh, you know, maybe I could do some good. But if I'm able to work across institutions and across continents with researchers uh, that uh, are willing, um, we can really make some uh, changes uh, to and, and provide some solutions to these challenges that we face. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls. Tomorrow we're going to pick up conversations, some things you may have seen in the news this week uh, around a, a court decision in, in Pennsylvania, which is uh, basically trying to force the governor of Pennsylvania to move more swiftly towards opening facilities and court cases that have come out of Michigan and Wisconsin along these lines. So we're going to be talking about the courts and COVID-19 tomorrow with Lindsay Wiley and Kathy Bergen. And I want to thank Luke Montrose, and I've kept you over time. I've kept every guest this week over time because these discussions have been really amazing. We'll have to check back in with you because this story is ongoing. Um, it's fascinating what you're doing in your lab. And again, thanks for making time and sharing all of your uh, insights with us. Happy to come back anytime. Okay, take care. And everybody stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock.